um, life is done better together, I encourage you to get involved. Um, this morning, we are continuing in our innovation series. I started last week, Ken spoke on creativity, and when I saw um, innovation as a series, I thought, this is a perfect series for Bend. Uh, there is, Ken spoke on creativity, there are a surplus of creative people here, right? There's more here than anywhere else I've ever been. And we need to contemplate as people of faith, how do I use my creativity for the Lord? What does that look like? What does it not look like? This morning, I, I have the topic of leadership and responsibility, and then next week, Ken will be speaking on church-shaping culture. Um, but as I thought about leadership and responsibility, again, I thought this is perfect for this group of people. Again, there are a larger amount of people who are leaders in Bend than most places. Bend attracts an entrepreneurial spirit, and that comes with ingrained leadership. And so as Christians, when we talk about leadership and we wonder, how do I lead? What, what does that look like for me to use these skills, this... I don't know, it's weird, how do I do this? I think this is perfect for us to stop on a Sunday and think about that. Now, the irony is not lost on me of a 24-year-old speaking on leadership and responsibility, right? Uh, the only thing I have led is a life of foolishness, and I only recently became responsible for my own meals, okay? This is not like, I don't know, why? not the best choice. But the beauty about speaking in church is that I don't speak from a position of personal existential experience that I say, look what I've done, you should follow this, but rather out of an attitude of humility saying, what does God have to speak to us? What, what do the scriptures say about leadership? Where can we learn? What, what does the Almighty want to tell us about how we lead? And as I pondered that question and I started going through passages, um, I found he has a lot to say. Uh, I just jotted down a few. 1 Timothy 4.12, leadership has no age limit. Romans 9.1-3, leadership should be selfless. 1 Peter 5.2, leaders are controlled. Luke 12.48, much is required of leaders. James 3.1, leaders are judged on a stricter standard. Acts 20.28, leaders should always be on their guard. The Bible has a lot to say. I haven't even gotten to the passages in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1 that has qualifications for elders and deacons, leaders in the church. So I was at a bit of a problem here. I have a lot of different angles I could come at this. And as I prayed and I read, I decided that the best way to tackle the topic of leadership and responsibility would be to come at it from the angle of what I believe the Bible suggests is the largest component Right? I, I just read a bunch of different things. Leadership isn't one. It is a mixture of a lot of different things. It's multifaceted. It's like a great salad. It's not defined by one thing, but rather the combination of the ingredients, right? That's leadership. And so when I sat down, I thought, I, I want to take the biggest, the most important one that the Bible suggests, and I believe that is the aspect of servant leadership. Now, in addition to prayer and reading, I chose servant leadership as the angle to come at this because I believe that it is subtly under attack. Let me explain. Um, Descartes is famous for being the father of modernism. And he probably penned the most famous phrase in all of philosophy. Anybody? I think, therefore I am. 
cogito ergo sum, right? We, we like to throw it out as if like a reporter just walked up and was like, hey, uh, Renee, give me a quote. I think, therefore, I am. That's good. I have to write that down. Um, that phrase comes in the midst of a great struggle for Descartes. It's in his book, Meditations on First Philosophy, and he goes away from everything, goes into the woods literally, and he sits down with a hermeneutic of skepticism and says, I am going to doubt everything that cannot be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he's in this downward spiral of epistemology where I, I don't... I, I have no knowledge that I can trust anywhere. And as this spiral keeps spinning, he's losing everything and he's trying to grasp on something that he can build up from. And he comes to this phrase, I think, therefore I am. The phrase actually uh, has a fallacy within it, just for trivia in case you're ever on a show or something. I don't know. Um, It should read, thinking is happening, therefore I am. He presupposes I while trying to prove existence. It's a problem (laughs) but that's okay Um, and in doing so Descartes marks a paradigm shift in how we think he begins knowledge with self all of it begins with me I think therefore I am it all starts right here baby I'm the most important I've got some issues with that in and of itself Um, it's the first heresy in my view of modernism, the creation of autonomy. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. Before you were ever your own I, you were first someone else's you, right? Before I was ever able to have cognitive existence of myself, somebody else knew me. Therefore, knowledge can't start with me. There was others before myself. Also, Descartes is thinking and writing in a language, that comes with baggage and, and that language has history and to say that it begins right here with existence and to try and shed that I'm thinking in a language or in a culture has problems. But what, what he really did was he started with self and we bought it. And through unmitigated, unfounded intellectual importance of self, we have made the concept of others void. We filled our hands and we've emptied our hearts. And with it, the idea of being a leader and a servant has been under attack. Oh, why would I do that? I'm the most important. I tell you that to say that uh, literally our way of thinking, the Western world, is fighting against this concept of servanthood. No, 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 no. I want to be top, man. Everybody else needs to look up to me. I want position. I want power, recognition. I want to be a servant. That's difficult for us because Jesus suggests something entirely different. In Mark chapter 10, which is our text this morning, you can turn there. Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. If you would stand with me and read Scripture. Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. 
And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we thank you for your scripture and your revelation of yourself to us always. I pray that you would grant us humility and service in a way that could only come from you. It is against our nature. I want, I want to be more important. I pray that you would help us through the daily decrease of self and increase of you in our lives to learn how to serve. May that be something that is true of Antioch, that we are a church that serves, Lord. Thank you for the cross and what you did for us and your servant attitude. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, Mark is a, uh, a very matter-of-fact book. If you read through it, it's just, it's like this giant run-on thought. You can look um, at all of the little section titles, and then the next word almost always begins with and. So just in our chapter here today, in chapter 10, and he left there and went to the region, and in the house of the disciples, and they were bringing children, and he was setting out on his journey, and Jesus took, it, it's just this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and it just goes straight through. It's just very, very matter-of-fact and, and chronologically just, straight through. Here's what happened, and here's next. And in the midst of that, we are on our way up to Jerusalem. The immediate context of this passage, the, the three verses preceding 32 through 34, if you look back, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was happening to him saying, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. The immediate backdrop and foreshadowing of this passage is the passion of Christ. The, the coming crucifixion. Our text this morning sits in the shadow of the cross and Jesus knows it. And in the midst of that, his disciples are bickering about who's the most important. I always find it interesting, not that the beginning uh, work of Christ isn't as important, but these last few weeks, uh, when you know you're about to die, every word becomes more valuable, right? I always find it interesting what Jesus has to say in the, in the end of his life. What, I got to make sure I, I get this in because they, they need to hear this. And that's what our passage is today. I, I literally just prophesied about my coming death and I want you guys to know about servant leadership. And yet the disciples are all, uh-uh. I want to I be the most important. I'm power grab. It was a lonely walk to Jerusalem for our Savior. 
And all of his disciples walk around with mirrors all around everywhere they turn. They see them. I, I'm, uh, can you make sure I'm important? And that's what leads us to our text. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Wow. <laughs> right? What a request. I don't think, I couldn't ask that to anyone. If I said that to my wife, she would say, what do you want? You know, that, that's the immediate, what are you, are you kidding me? What an amazing precursor. I would do whatever I ask of you. On the flip side of that, if you're Jesus, you got to be wondering, what is coming next? <laughs> what in the world could they want? I mean, I don't even know, Midas touch, they want to know the secret of life. They want to know what the fox says. I don't know. It, who knows what they want? This is going to be amazing. And yet he responds graciously. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? This is not an uncommon uh, response from Jesus. If you look even just later in our chapter, verse 51, uh, Bartimaeus, a blind man, is calling out to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It has become um, almost a routine response as Everywhere he goes, people are asking for something. And even though the precursor to their question is incredibly bold, he still is gracious and says, okay, what's your request? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. The brothers tipped their hand to the selfishness that we all know to be prevalent in humanity. There's no shock here. I, I know what that's like. I know what it is to be selfish. In the midst of that, they're just telling Jesus, listen, we're closer to you than anybody else on earth. We want to make sure that that's true in heaven. And they have this presumption that just make sure it happens. I want to, I want to leapfrog everybody else. I don't want anybody near me. We need to be closest. Listen to the words of John Calvin. This narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity, for it shows that proper and holy zeal is often accompanied by ambition. They who are not satisfied with himself alone, but seek this or the other thing apart from him and his promises, wander egregiously from the right path. This isn't even new to the disciples. If you turn back to chapter 9 and look at verse 33, um, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat them down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, a servant of all. They're really concerned about this. What's the hierarchy, Jesus? Who's first? I know Judas is last. And then it's probably like Philip, Bartholomew. And then, where am I? I want to be, tell me where I fit. And he keeps trying to explain, listen, I'm going to die. I'm a servant here. I'm not concerned with my position. You need to serve. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What does that mean? 
Um, If you turn just a couple pages in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is praying in the garden on his way up to the cross. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Similarly, in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, you don't need to turn there, just listen. There's a similar concept of baptism. I have a I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Uh, Jesus understands the, the analogy of the cup and the baptism as the suffering that he will endure for the will of God. This is difficult. That, that's consistent in the Old Testament. You can find the cup being referred to very similarly in Psalm 78, or 75.8, Isaiah 51.17, and also baptism. There's a lot of places, Psalm 18, 16, 69, 1 and 2. There, this is consistent with Scripture. When he says, can you drink my cup? This is the suffering that comes with following God's will. Now, 30-second time out. I'm going to step away because this isn't really in our text this morning. Um, particularly the new atheists have suggest, suggested that all religion and Christianity is escapism. You don't want to deal with the hard facts of life, so you just run away to this fairy tale land of religion. An honest reading of the Bible would never allow that. Jesus says, This is difficult. You're going to drink my cup? You know what kind of suffering that is? This isn't an escape from problems. Being a Christian on earth will create more problems, they're different ones. This isn't escapism at all. Don't ever believe that, by the way. Being, having faith is not an escape from the difficulties of life. That, that's a lie. It's just, it, that if it is, it's not New Testament faith. That's not what the apostles lived. That's not what Jesus did. That's something other than Christianity. All right, back to our text. Verse 39. And they said to him, we're able. Oh, how naive. Right? Again, this isn't foreign to us. I love the idea of following Jesus. I'm all in. I just don't want to give up my comfort. I don't don't want to be inconvenienced. I can do it. Well, most of it. I'll I'll do some of the hard things. I'm going to read it straight from my notes because I think I said it better there than I'm going to be able to do from memory. Often you and I are eager when we think of a life of following Christ. However, this reflex routinely yields greater intentions than actions. My trophy wall of good intentions is full, and yet the slow grind of a dedication to discipleship is rarely something I actually live. Does that ring true with anybody else? I want to be able. I I can do that. Jesus, I can drink that cup chose poorly apparently it's hard this is difficult and James and John think that they can take part of the messianic glory without the messianic suffering because in a few short chapters they are going to forsake him and flee now they they do share in the suffering later in Acts chapter 12 James dies he's beheaded by Herod John is exiled to the island of Patmos. He writes Revelation. These guys suffered. 
They did, but they weren't ready for it now. And that's what Jesus is going to tell them. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. Jesus displays the type of servant attitude he is trying to instill in them by not usurping the Father's authority. Listen, this isn't for me to give. I'm a servant, like you should be a servant. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they, be, they became indignant at James and John. This, we just read it in chapter 9. All of a sudden, discord is becoming the distinctive that describes the disciples, right? Instead of caring about their master who they've followed for three years, they have petty arguments over personal position and they forget about the tension of the prophesied passion that's coming. Where am I going to be in the kingdom? I'm the most important. They fight over it. You ever felt that way in church? You ever had that thought? Well, I don't know why they, they get to do that, and I don't. I'm better at that than they would be. I should be more important here. I don't know why they let that guy on stage. I know what he does. I don't want to go, I don't want to go serve somewhere else. I want to be front and center. I'm a leader. Give me the spotlight. I think I am. I'm the most important. You give that opportunity to somebody else. I could have done that better. Very, very rarely do we find someone who's willing to be a servant, to care, to not get recognition that they think they deserve. I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon. If all you have is very little, just that penny's worth of loaves and fishes, use that properly and you will do your master's service. And in due time, when God wants you, he will know where to find you. You need not put an advertisement in the paper. He knows the street you live on and the number on the door. You need not go and push yourself to the front. The Lord will bring you to the front when he wants you. And I hope that you do not want to get there if he does not want you. This is the harsh reality of, of church service, right? Well, I want to do what's important. Why don't you, you serve with what you have now? Treat that as if it's important. Be a servant. And as they bicker, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach. Verse 42. Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Huh? 
What do you not understand about leadership, Jesus? You got that backwards. This is antithetical to what our world tells us should be in leadership. And we take our world's mentality of the importance of self and apply it to church. I want the corner office of Christianity, right? We've traded in the shepherd for the CEO. But according to Christ, leadership isn't measured by the number of people who follow you, but by the number of people you have served. How many times did you give of yourself for someone else? Godly leadership requires us to stare the green-eyed demon of self in the face and put it to death for the sake of others. That's what, there's almost sarcasm. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Little trash talk from the Savior. You gotta love it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Come on. We should be lining up to serve. This is what Christians do. It is not so among you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. It breaks my heart that Linda has to beg people to serve in our kids' ministry. We should have a fight every Sunday morning out in the commons because people want to serve and can't. And all the spots are filled. I'm sorry. I've never once heard Linda tell somebody, I would love to get you on a schedule, but I'm full for the next two months. We laugh, but it's it's sad. This is what is supposed to signify leadership. And it's nowhere to be found in our church. We want to be important. We treat this as if it's a consumer activity, right? Well, I didn't get what I wanted out of that church service. I come and it's about me. Didn't like the music today. Probably going to write a comment card. (laughs) Pretty upset with how they did that. I don't like what they're talking about. This is not the attitude of service where you come and say, how can I help? I don't walk in with a chip on my shoulder waiting to be offended by anything that happens in a church service. My mindset is, where can I help further the kingdom of God? How can I give of my time, my effort, my money so the gospel can be proclaimed? And if it's, a little, if it's take out the garbage, I take out the garbage. If you get asked to speak, you speak. Whatever he gives you, you treat it as if it is important because it is. Martin Luther said, the cobbler who cobbles well brings just as much glory to God as the preacher who preaches well. We do it all to the glory of God. There isn't a hierarchy. You become a servant. I'm not above anything. I will serve. How can I serve my church? If I need to shovel the sidewalk when it snows, I'll shovel the sidewalk. If somebody else is there serving already, good. The church is doing a good thing. This isn't just internally, by the way. In John 13, 
as Jesus again is in the upper room going towards his death, he tells his disciples, and the new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, and by this all men will know you're my disciples, by your love. The distinguishing mark of being a leader in Christianity, your service. Not your Twitter followers. Right? The preeminence of service should be prevalent in church. Everywhere. It would be great next week if everybody was out serving and there was no one in here. Don't tell Whitesma I said that. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> if next week comes and there's nobody in the service, I'm, okay, never mind. And believe it or not, Jesus is in the same boat. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In God's kingdom, humility and service are the rule, and Jesus isn't an exception. Why do you think you are? Do we do this? Do we, do we load other people's burdens onto our already full shoulders? I want to serve you. Do we wade into the waters of misery that are not our own for the purpose of, of caring and serving someone else? This is the prescription from Christ. Be a servant. If you want to lead, if you want to apply yourself as a leader, serve people. Let me illustrate this um, out of the Old Testament. Um, Genesis chapter 22. You, you don't need to turn there. This is going to be lightning bouncing around in, in the scriptures. Um, I teach a class to our interns. I'm on my, for the last couple of years, I'm on my fourth go-round of it. And basically we walked through leaders in scripture. And I just started with Abraham and just chronologically went through the Bible. We get through as many as we can. And this summer, I was teaching that class, and I remember it vividly. On a Tuesday morning, I was preparing, and I came to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. A very simple verse. Um, but after going through this several times, it jumped out at me, and I didn't really know why. And then I started thinking about where else I'd seen that phrase Genesis 22, which I just read. Genesis 31, 11, Jacob receives a vision from God and God calls to him and he responds, here I am. Genesis 46, 2, Jacob is told by God to go down to Egypt and Jacob responds, here I am. Exodus 3, 4, a burning bush calls out to Moses and Moses responds, here I am. 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel is called from God over and over again at night and he responds, here I am. Isaiah 6, 8, he receives a vision from the seraphim and God steps out of heaven and says, who will go for us? And Isaiah Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. What am I after? I, I thought it was really interesting. All of these people respond the same way. So I started looking things up. I don't speak Hebrew at all, so I apologize if you do. That those three words in English are one in Hebrew, it's heneni. It means at your service. Here I am, how may I help you? As I read further, I found one scholar that said, this is what Adam's response should have been in the garden. When God called out, 
and he left it unanswered. That question echoes today unanswered when we refuse to serve. I want, I was at your service. You be at my service. I'm important. Make me happy. And yet all of these leaders in the Old Testament, it's no fluke that the patriarchs routinely respond with, how may I serve you? This is, a part, this is the main facet of leadership in the Bible. Are you willing to serve? Are you ready for the most amazing part of it all? You can turn with me on this one. Isaiah 58, 6. As I read through these passages and I kept finding this response and this idea of service that came with it, I was shocked. And then I sat at my desk in utter amazement when I came to this passage. Are you ready? Isaiah 58, 6. Is not this the fast that I choose to lose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Excuse me, this is Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel. I should have said that before. When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall you, excuse me, then shall your light break forth into the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be at your rear guard. Pay attention to verse nine. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. Are you shocked at God being willing to serve you? Because you should be. He repeats it later in Isaiah 65, 1. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am. I'm at your service. The Almighty calls to us. This is what Christ is doing. I am a servant. Even though I am the creator, I am serving. It is shocking. God tells me, I'm, here I am. If you cry out, are you kidding me? I did nothing to deserve this. This is the sign of leadership that is given an example by God. Our call to leadership and our call to service are one and the same. These two things go together. I have one more quick illustration out of Romans. Do I have that much time? I thought I was good. You guys have to stay put for a little while. Yeah, okay. Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is, is all about uh, God choosing what we call election. Um, but before you even get into that, that tension and the, and the dense theological language, Paul has these first few verses that are uh, utterly amazing. I was shocked when I read them. And it, to me, typifies this idea of service that I had no clue 
Romans 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Hear me clearly. I like you. Never once have I thought, Jesus, please curse me so they can be saved. Right? What type of self-sacrificial service does it call, have to be present for you to make that statement? I've never been close to that. Full disclosure. Not, sorry. I'm too selfish for that statement. I care about me. My world has taught me to do so. Try this home because when we talk about leadership it, and it's void of serving others, the Bible says that's not leadership at all. This isn't, by the way, just applied in the church. As I said, this, this will work in your business too. If you want to shock somebody, don't fight your way up the corporate ladder. Serve people. What? <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. I would rather put someone else down so I can be elevated. We're not an election season, but how many billions of dollars were spent airing ads to defame someone else so I could be shown as better? This is what leadership is in our country. And it's not on one side. If you're an elephant or a donkey, you're both doing it. Right? You have to, I'm just, mm, I need to put other people down so I can be shown to be better. And cover up my flaws, act like those aren't there, and expose everything about the other person. No. Don't you dare. Your faith in Christ tells you that's not allowed. You want to be great? Be a servant. Who sits close to Christ? Those who served. I'm going to close with some words about responsibility. I realize the title of this was supposed to be leadership and responsibility, and I've spoken almost exclusively on leadership. Um, that was intentional. I feel like those two things are two sides of the same coin, right? If you're leading, you're responsible. It, you can't separate that. You have responsibility. It, it is ingrained into leadership. Um, but as I thought about this message and I was looking at responsibility, uh, there's a word that kept jumping out, the, the synonyms that kept springing to mind. It was a word with Stewardship. And what do we think of, what do you guys think, when I say the word stewardship, what's the, like, word association? What else do you think of? Okay, I have no clue what anybody said. <laughs> Money. Okay, thank you, I appreciate that. Responsibility. Smart aleck in the front row. Um, 
Okay, the environment. Um, we like to think about stewardship as all of these different things. I have to steward the environment. I, I am a steward of my time, of my money. I had a class uh, in my college career on the biblical theology of money and possessions. It was fascinating. Um, one of the biggest things that I took out of that class was revolved around the word stewardship. And as we chased this word down and as I thought about responsibility and what are we responsible for, I kept coming back to this. Because if you go, if you go up 3rd Street to Family Christian Bookstore, this way, sorry, right? And if you go look up the word stewardship, almost every one of those books is going to be on your finances and how do we manage this or that. And the Bible has a completely different view of stewardship. For the New Testament writers, you are a steward of the gospel of Christ. Everything else is under that umbrella. The way you use your money reflects your stewardship of the good news. You can find this in Titus 1.7, uh, Luke 12, or 1 Peter 4, where Peter's talking about, you have been stewarded a gift, a spiritual gift to use for the kingdom of God. It is your responsibility to use what you have to steward it for the gospel As I contemplated this idea of responsibility and leadership, service is great. Hear me clearly. But if it is founded on nothing, if you're just, woe is me, I'm always serving and never getting put up, there's no value in that. The reason you serve is to further the gospel. The connection between leadership and responsibility, for us as innovative people, you use your leadership to show that I'm not holding on to that. I'm not above anything. I, I'm okay with doing a job that someone else would look at and go, what? He's in a suit. He doesn't do that job. Well, we're not in bed, so no one's in a suit, but he owns a tie. Maybe that's a better, I don't know. I hold that so lightly, my position, I'm a servant. Why? So that people will look at me and go, that guy's different. Right? He, I'm shocked at how much he wants to serve other people. From there, it is your responsibility as a believer, as a steward of the gospel, to take the good news. These two things aren't isolated. There's no leadership, responsibility. They go together. You use your servanthood as a way to further Christ's kingdom. It's not just the putting down of self just for the sake of putting myself down, serving just so I can be secretly proud about it. I serve for the sake of the kingdom. This is our call, friends as leaders in this community, as creative people. Our text this morning suggests, don't, don't try and climb. 
Be a servant. Be last. I don't know why this jumped into my head, but I, it's funny to me, so I'm going to say it. Um, I grew up in church, and we always had potlucks. Yeah, that's a, I don't know. It's more of a thing in Midwest than it is here. I don't know. But as a kid, they, they'd like dismissed by tables, and somehow I was always in the front of the line. Do you guys know that kid? I was that kid, okay? Like, it didn't matter what table got dismissed. Somehow I was going first. <laughs> um, and as I grew into my adulthood, every time I'd go to a potluck, I'd feel like I have to be the last person through to make up for all of the years that I was the first one through the line. Like, I'm paying now for what I did as a child. That's the idea. Nothing good is left at the end of the potluck line. Everybody who's ever gone through that knows what I'm talking about. There's a reason that green bean casserole wasn't touched. And servanthood will lead you to those things. It'll, it'll take you from the front of the line. My table's not dismissed, but I'm getting mine to the very back. I would rather others go first. It's a shocking display of humility that we mimic because our Savior did it. We do so with the responsibility of the gospel of Christ at the forefront of our mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a moment, uh, a morning to contemplate what you have to say to us about leadership. May we serve with grateful hearts. May we honor you. May we see it as a privilege to get to serve in any capacity. I pray humility that it can only come for you. Thank you for this church the church that has come before us and the godly men and women whose shoulders we stand on, Lord. May we continue the faith. May we follow you and may we serve well. In your name we pray.